Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. Radio show and podcast for those who won't just take things on faith. Coming to you from Grand Rapids, Michigan, you can find us online at www.doubtcast.org. Or those of you in Michigan can listen to us on Public Reality Radio, WPRR, Ada Grand Rapids, and W237CZ Hudsonville, 1680 AM and 95.3 FM. You can also listen streaming live at publicrealityradio.org. My name is Dave Fletcher. With me in the studio is my fellow Doubtcaster and the only human to beat Watson, the supercomputer, Dr. Professor Luke Gatlin. What is Dr. Professor? Now, we should note that you beat it with a hammer, but uh, still. I merely unplugged the machine. That's right. They didn't say that was cheating. (laughs) And our junior Doubtcaster, teen pop sensation, the star of the hit 3D documentary, Never Say Always... Mr. Justin Schieber. Uh, with religious undertones included. That's right. Can we play I'm a Believer for his, like, uh, <laughs> for his song? Did you hear the whole uh, Justin Bieber Rolling Stone controversy about no, abortion? I didn't. They asked him about he's a Christian, so they asked him about abortion. And, you know, he, if he was. <laughs> Why does anyone care what Justin Bieber has to say about uh, abortion? Please I, tell us what we should do. In all that. fairness, I don't think that, yes, he should have been spun that. But then he said, you know, they said, even in cases of rape and incest, you're against that. And he's like, well, everything happens for a reason. And they Ooh. just published that part. But then Rolling Stone just issued a an extension where he said, I can't think of a reason why that would be, you know, uh, right. that would happen. But I'm not in the place to judge. So it sort of took the edge off. But there was a little bit of a hoo-ha where he wow. said that he looked like he was doing the whole blame the victim thing. But Well, in this week's episode, we've got some God thinks like you for bastards and bad fathers, counter apologetics for serial killers little polyatheism just in time to be a week and a half late for Valentine's Day, some props to give out, and a stranger than fiction that explains why I always text using correct spelling and punctuation, period. <laughs> period. But first, uh, it's been a while since we've looked into our electronic mailbag, and uh, I wanted to take some time this week to do that because we've gotten um, some interesting interesting emails of late. We prefer that to actual packages because then we have to have the bomb squad go through those and whatnot. So just send emails. Unless you're sending cookies, in which case that's cool. I want to start off here with someone who pointed out um, something that we didn't talk about um, on our C.S. Lewis episode. We uh, debunked some of C.S. Lewis's theology, not so much the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Um, but one thing we didn't mention is one of uh, Lewis's most famous arguments, which uh, the listener uh, mentions here. He says, quote, I was kind of bummed out that you didn't mention the trilemma. Jesus claimed to be God, and either he was or wasn't. If he wasn't, then he's either barking mad or he's an evil liar. Either way, we can't say that he was a great moral teacher, but not God. Bart Ehrman points out with the false dilemma by a fourth option, legend, which is what I would also throw in there. But our listener goes on to say, I was thinking about this issue the other day when it struck me that the argument is fallacious on a much more basic level. It's a twisted kind of ad hominem attack. Lewis's argument assumes that if Jesus was a lunatic or a liar, 
then we don't have to listen to his moral teachings. But we ought to evaluate Jesus's teachings on their own merits, not simply because it is the Son of God uttering them. Jesus may in fact have been mad or bad, but he still had some important things to say. No, no. I found out that Socrates the other day wasn't God, so all his philosophy... Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. <laughs> nope. Out the window. Yeah, in the same way, you know, if, if Socrates didn't exist, right? Um, with, with the things that, so, right, right. that mean, are written... If Plato just made it up, yeah, then, uh, exactly. there it's never was a It's a irrelevant point to make. I mean, if, if the words are there and, and we can take them for their own value. As f- only feeble minds like... Uh, Thomas Jefferson, for example, thought yes. that he could decontextualize Jesus' teachings <laughs> from right. the divine aspects by razoring out all the hoo-ha. Yeah. He just doesn't understand. Now, we had another listener who, who helped us out with some counter-apologetics and uh, mentioned the argument that uh, Christians often use when they say, well, God lives outside of time and space. This comes from... From Billy, who says that he's a mathematics and computer science, uh, has a mathematics and computer science background. And, of course, since he has that, we should listen to him. See see what I did with the uh, whole logical fallacy? My ears have been turned on. Yeah. Um, he says, at a glance, the statement seems rather benign, not to mention abstract. It reduces God to a mere concept. But that aside, do you really understand the gravity of such a claim? The statement implies that God exists outside of our universe and empirically in another. Fine, the physical laws in his universe can be to his liking. But once he steps his big toe into our universe, he is subject to its laws. No exceptions. Let's consider what happens if he didn't. If we set aside M-theory for the moment, thank goodness for that. (laughs) Yes, let's set that aside for a moment. Pages rustling. That's right. Uh, We'll say we exist in four-dimensional universe. Three physical, X, Y, Z, and one more for time. So if God lives outside our time, we must subtract one dimension. If he only exists outside of space, please subtract three more. So their God occupies zero dimensions in our universe, (laughs) with which he must part the Red Sea. There is no known way to extract mass from a zero-dimensional object, even if its power is infinite. I need a chalkboard just to go through that. I know. How, how do you great? tell a non-existent thing from something that has no dimensions? Exactly. I believe it was what Julius Winnie said that sometimes the non-existent and the uh, the invisible and the invisible look very much alike. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and he said he goes on to say this also leads to an interesting side effect. The only place where you can mathematically have an infinitely powerful god or point without dimensions is inside a singularity, which agrees with observation. The Christian God can only exist with the prayers of his followers inside a black hole. Ooh, we nice. have some uh, clever listeners. Why don't we have a, a listener email, liar, lunatic, or lord uh, contest, and we would assign each <laughs> email to – I don't even know if that one is either lunatic or lord. Yeah. yeah. Maybe this person's a genius. Maybe uh, – Maybe he's know. nuts because I don't really understand math that well. <laughs> so. Maybe but but point wrong. taken, if you want to intervene in the physical universe, you, if you live out in the burbs, you still got to commute to work. So exactly. God could be living out in some metaphysical burb, but if he's got to change something in the physical world, he's got to commute into town. That's yeah, but true. but but my God is above the laws of logic, so oh. you're not allowed to actually say any of those things. Certainly <laughs> a lot of people are beyond the rules of logic as well. So. Uh, we had another email with someone asking a, a, a provocative question. Uh, this listener got into an argument with a friend, uh, a theist friend, and the theist friend said, quote, 
He said that if we found ourselves at the pearly gates in front of St. Peter, he would inform him that I was an atheist and should be heading downstairs. <laughs> Which, by the way, if, if you need to tell St. Peter that, what? he's not doing a great job anyway. So so the friend says... He's a heaven narc. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> hey, if, he's trying to get through the gate. <laughs> Stop him. And, and um, our listener retorted to their friend... I would tell St. Peter, eat a dick, old man, <laughs> which is apparently a reference to the Boondocks cartoon. And the whole room full of people they were in gasped that the listener would dare to say something so offensive. The listener points out that uh, they proceeded to point out that they had said something to someone they didn't believe existed while their opponent had said it, said if he were proved right, he would recommend the listener's eternal torture. Yeah, so which is worse? Which is worse? I mean, come on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that, uh, you know, I, I would I would narc on you and, and tell, you yeah. know, arrange a situation where you're going to burn in hell for eternity versus, um, you know, say a derogatory thing about, about a dragon or some other mythical right, thing. Right. And this person, as a theist, isn't talking about a dragon, they're talking about something that they really believe will happen, <laughs> right. that they will go up to the pearly gates. I don't know if it's set up like in the, in the jokes, but uh, they go up to the pearly gates and there's St. Peter with his list. And they would say, hey, by the way, my friend there, send right. them to hell. He's a little celestial Santa Claus with his naughty and nice list. Right. And yeah. I feel like we're running almost at advice. Well, let me tell you, listener, <laughs> they're going to do you a big favor. You're going to be spending – if you got in, you'd be spending eternity faking belief. Do you really want right. to do that? Yeah. So it's, they ended up doing you a favor. Well, uh, continuing on with advice now, this is this is uh, slightly uh, more uh, important advice, I suppose. Um, uh, a listener wrote to us who's been uh, going through some tough times, non-specific tough times. It doesn't really matter what they are, and he says he turned to his parents for advice, and um, finally they just said, "God has a plan for you. Trust, mm. and He will get you through it all." Have you been praying about it? And the listener's question is that it seems as a believer, it's easy to say when you're going through tough times, God has a plan. I heard this from my mother about a dozen times in the last week. Hmm. God has a plan, uh, all of this. What do we as free thinkers have to fall back on? Everything is determined. Right. Exactly. Well, this is... <laughs> You know, this is the result of a complicated web of deterministic events. And I don't know. Is that is that really what we fall back on to make <laughs> ourselves feel better? Well, one thing, that, one thing that needs to be pointed out is that, um, uh, yeah, I think that it is true that many religious people do have more readily available pat answers. Yes. Mm. But that doesn't – to say that um, I came up with an answer, oh, God has a plan, and acting as this, that's just sufficient to, oh, I'll just uh, feel better about things – if that's your comparison group, it's almost like saying that, uh, you know, well, drinking makes somebody feel better, so right. why like, not drink? Like exactly. that, that George Bernard Shaw quote that says it's yes. it's no more to the point to say that a, uh, a a drunk man is happier than a sober one than to say that, you know, the religious folk are going to be happier than, than the non-believers. Yeah, yeah so it, it is like, you know, we, we I, I think it is true that many religious people who have that God controls everything, think they have a readily available answer, but I guess the thing is that do you really want an answer that's that's pat like that? 
you know, there isn't any simple advice that we can give, you know, without knowing the situation. There probably isn't an easy way out, but at least it's honest. Well, and, and, and actually, that was kind of a big turning point for me. I, in my high school years and early college years, I struggled a lot. And that was as I was kind of, I was still religious. And I kept telling myself, all this stuff happened. God has a plan. I don't know what that plan is, but there's a plan. And that gets really difficult. It's very taxing to keep that idea. Like when Mm. the crap keeps piling up and you keep going, well, God has a plan for this. What is it? And that'll drive you nuts. When I leaving that mindset, I can now go, there isn't a plan for this. I don't have to find a logic behind bad things happening to me. Instead, there is no plan, which means we can change it. No, I, I've, right. I've never understood. I mean, clearly people don't like ran, the thought of randomness, just right. stuff happening oh, without a purpose. It's terrifying. But I've always <laughs> – I've never understood why people would prefer that the bad things that happen in life are intentional. Yes. And I'm too stupid to see what the plan is rather than just it's random. I've always actually preferred the random to a vindictive God or somebody who allows suffering oh, yeah. or things, even if it's for some master plan because then I get to thinking why – some sort of, of, uh, of, of planning and, you know, I mean it – it makes your plans for the future, it makes it count because it's something to act towards. It, it's not written it in stone. It may not happen, yeah. but it's something that you can be intentional about. Yes. Um, it's not all you know, predetermined. Right. And perhaps people mean well like his parents that say, oh, uh, you know, God mean, means well. But that sort of thing actually is a – it almost shuts down. It's almost something that people say when they don't know what else to, to just abide with you and sit with you and Absolutely. say, wow, you know, I care about you. I don't have a solution to problems, but I'll sit here and listen to you if you want to talk and I'll help you where I can. I mean that sort of thing takes more effort than just saying don't worry about it. God has a plan. It's almost a way of shutting things down. Right. Can you imagine if psychiatrists did that? For one thing, they they would have very short sessions. Right? <laughs> yeah. Why is all this happening? Well, God has a plan. God has a plan, and right. and that plan includes Zopoft, our new <laughs> medication that I can write you a script for uh, to numb the pain. That sounds delicious. Existence. I mean, you know, yeah. I mean, I think that that you know, a lot of people that aren't religious do have a tougher time because they're they don't see an overarching purpose to their suffering, but. Because there isn't one. There isn't. But but, but we have each other. And what more, you know, really what more do you want is that to the best advice that you could probably give is to know that you're not alone. Whatever the troubles are, you're not alone. And that to to find a social network that accepts you without trying to just shut off the discussion with, oh, it's going to be okay next. Now, last uh, listener email I wanted to share today. This this is a... um, Pretty pretty serious one. Ser- serious accusations being leveled against us here. Dear sirs, how can Dr. Luke Galen be anything other than a pseudonym? It cannot be coincidence that a man is named after the most famous doctors of the first and second century. It can only be the self-selected pseudonym of a man well-versed in the religious and scientific history of Rome in the first and second century. Unsurprisingly, it is a pseudonym chosen by a man making a podcast which deals very much with history, science, and religion. Us, me, Luke Galen truthers demand to know his real name. (laughs) Oh, my God. I found their website the other day. (laughs) To this listener, I'd say, Mom, listen. (laughs) You chose it. You know, actually, 
short funny story here is that the first time that anyone ever pointed that out, I was in college and I was like deadly sick. I had mono. Yeah. I could barely – my friends like I could barely make it to the health center. And the doctor was apparently a minor history buff in the field of medicine. Is like, do you know that both your names are actually – medical names and he proceeded to tell me about Galen the doctor to the gladiators and the four humans. See, I was going to say I'm familiar and, with, with and Luke, Luke which the is traveling the, companion of Paul who was the biblical Luke yeah. the whose name the gets ascribed to so, the Yes, through my pain Luke. and my my haze of of sickness I appreciated the little history lesson. <laughs> Thanks very much, but just heal me and uh you know, wow. get on with it. Yeah, and uh, uh then the listener says that I googled him. Dope. All right. Well, and just to prove <laughs> – I've created an entire – that's all a part of my plan, <laughs> listeners. I've created a whole fake persona and put it up on the internet. Uh, yeah, counter evidence <laughs> is evidence I of found the best-looking photos I could. I uploaded those. That's uh, why there's not many. Um, <laughs> oh. Just to prove how real Dr. Professor Luke Galen is, we now present to you another edition of God Thinks Like You. God. So, Luke, I have a bad relationship with my father, and I'm an atheist. Well, care's closed. Yeah, we know okay. where it goes right. at. I was going to examine your beliefs and the reasons that you have for thinking the way you do, but I don't need to do that because <laughs> you've just explained why you were. Right. Okay. Okay, good. That's what I thought because I, I, I was listening to an interview with Paul Vitz. Um, and, and, and he made that, that exact same argument that um, atheists are atheists because they have bad relationships with their dads. Yeah, you know, I ran across this Vitz reference actually in my Psych of Religion textbook. Really? Because the, mm. this is like a fourth edition textbook and there were some changes from the third one and they added a bunch of this stuff on could atheism be caused by – and they were talking about various – Things and one of them is a neurotic, like it's a disease. A neurotic, like no. The way they phrased it was a neurotic rejection of God. Oh, the, mm. they talked about principled atheism versus neurotic rejection of God. Mm. And under that paragraph, cited people I had never heard of before, like this Dr. Vitz. So I had. Is he a doctor? He is a psychologist, supposedly oh, okay. from Stanford. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm using air quotes. So Dobson, isn't he? That's all you had to say, Dave. That's all you had to say. Man. Uh, but the um, uh, the more I poked into some of these readings, the more I found out that there was actually uh, – he has a book out, Faith of the Fatherless, which the title says yeah, it all. Which that, I'm going to be reading soon and I'm really excited about. And, uh, and if it's as good as he is in interview, <laughs> I cannot wait. Yeah, so I, I was looking up research, found the interview that you of which you spoke and, uh, and sure enough, he lays out his theory – uh, and uh, based on – Can we call it a theory because that has some scientific um, right. ideas behind it. Well, if you if – you He lays out his guess. If you consider theory as yeah. in hypothesis, I guess. There the, we go. The, hypothesis, the colloquial use of, of theory. <laughs> which is based on and, – and as you if – you, if listeners want to go look him up, he, he bases it on like a psychoanalytic reading of historical figures, right. both atheist and theist, and then compares them. So people like – um, Marx, Nietzsche, Darwin, Freud, Freud uh, and and then uh, theists like Pascal and uh, and Lewis and mm -hmm. you know and and finds that the in his analysis of history that these atheists actually had bad relationships with their father. Either their fathers were tyrannical and and, and cruel or rejecting, mm -hmm. uh, and that they. So or, or dead. Or dead. In yeah, some they cases. disappointed them. And so therefore atheism itself, as the title 
atheism, faith of the fatherless, is caused by crappy father relationships and that theism, uh, that a good father relationships preserves theistic belief. Yeah, and it, it's really interesting listening to him uh, spell out this argument. It, it's like playing a game of uh, spot the logical fallacy. I didn't even know where to start with the. With it's, the it's unbelievable. It very target-rich environment. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, first and foremost, of course, he's he's uh, cherry picking. He's data mining and just mm-hmm. going with the with the figures that fit into this idea. So, of why those atheists? That is, if you can come yeah. up with uh, maybe Nietzsche did. I don't know that much about Nietzsche, but let's say that the he was disappointed with his weak and uh, I believe the ineffectual father. Yes. A- and uh, and you know, but does Richard Dawkins have a poor relationship with his father? My understanding is he was a fine man. And mm-hmm. why those theists? That is, if we can, for every uh, Pascal who loved and admired the father, there's um, I'm Lutheran or I was raised Lutheran, so Martin Luther's father was known for being a tyrannical, abusive person right. who you know. Uh, Probably, um, you know, you know, who beat him and didn't even want him to be a, a priest. So why not pick those ones? And if you listen to the to his uh, interviews, he actually comes up with counterexamples, like Marx, for example. Well, Marx, uh, he <laughs> says, and this is this. a quote: "Marx was an exception." Which, but that makes me think there must have been something very important in his relationship with his father <laughs> that we have no record of, <laughs> because he spent his life rejecting his father's social class it's and the way of life, the capitalist class. So therefore, something might have been going on there that we don't know about. It had to have been about his father, it's but we're not sure how. Yeah, or, exactly. Or with uh, Ayn Rand, who apparently uh, admired her father, yes, uh, and, and very so, much so. And uh, let but me, he was an atheist or a skeptic at least. Yes. And because of that. Because she had a strong skeptical father that also made her. He said uh, she identified with her father who was interesting, stimulating, and skeptical. Uh, and that would account for the atheism being passed on through a positive father figure. Her, her atheism would have been passed on through identification with a skeptical father whom she admired. Wow. Well, so good father, so... bad father, either way. And, and I love his excuses for the Christians who have bad fathers because, yes, maybe they had bad or absent or weak fathers, but they sought out father figures. Father substitutes. Yes. yes. So, uh, you know, and he, um, uh, you know, the sort of speculative tone goes throughout the whole thing. Like, for example, with Madeline Murray O'Hare, who mm-hmm. was an atheist, he acknowledge that she and again i don't know her history but apparently she had big fights with her father and he said maybe her father abused her right do, do we know that his father her father abused her maybe he did but uh, it seems to me that you know if you're taking a um this is not an like you said this is not an empirical study these are cherry picked aspects but his in, his assessment of atheism also is that um right at the beginning of the interview he said and again, this is a quote. It's more convenient to be an atheist in our culture. There are no restraints on your sexual behavior or your time commitment to others. You don't have to worry about other things. If you feel needy and you want to help people, you can always vote Democratic and have the government take care of you. <laughs> so superficial atheists enjoy the relative freedom of not being a believer. I, I love wow. that, that he gets his, his political, political agenda there, yeah. mixed right in there too. That, oh, yeah. Democrats – are needy and uh, they want to help other people. Oh, shame on them. But uh, there's also a, a certain level of irony with this theory because it explains Freud's atheism by 
resorting to Freudian Freudian. theories (laughs) of development. Now, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but if Freud is an emotional-based thinker and not rational, should his theories be given credence to explain his own? It's pretty (laughs) self-defeating. Yeah, and and so there's a psychoanalytic tone here where, for example, he he talks a lot about the importance of a father. He said, fathers are important for encouraging thinking. Mm -hmm. Mothers are important and foundational for emotional development. Right. But fathers are important uh, in childhood and adolescence. The commonest way in which uh, bad fathers uh, promote is their sons become criminals because our prisons are filled with fatherless boys. Which, yeah. you know, I'll, I'll give him that point. There are a lot of people in prison who don't have fathers. But you know what? Not a lot of atheists. Not in a room. lot of atheists in prison. <laughs> a lot of Christians in uh, prison there. Yeah. So uh, the the analytic theory, though, and I think I've mentioned in previous podcasts, I don't know the, the number, but I've mentioned the... Um, attachment theory yes. uh, in, uh, of, of development, which suggests that children form, based on John Bowlby's model of secure and insecure attachments, like a, it's an evolutionary model of development, that if you have a caregiver and you're securely attached, that means you develop a close relationship where you rely upon the caregiver, that that sets up certain temperaments throughout childhood, you know, whereas if you're insecurely attached, if let's say mom is unpredictable or crazy or or cold, then the child has an insecure attachment. It's similar to the analytic theory, but there's more of a research basis because you can actually test and measure things like is the child, you know, securely or insecurely attached. They have like tests. But that actually does predict that if you have a secure attachment with your parent, that values become more easily transmitted from parent to child. Mm. That is if you're if you're uh, par- and, and then uh, contra- and contrary to that, if you have an insecure attachment, you tended to not have transmission from parental to the next generation of values. So does that suggest that um, a lot of us apostates, people whose whose parents were religious, who were raised religious and then became non-religious, are people who had um, less strong relationships with their parents and conversely people who find religion later in life? Ah, yes. So here's the thing. What you've picked up on is two things. One is that the, the second one first, and that is that this applies not only to religious parents and having apostate kids, mm-hmm. but also to having non or nominally religious parents and having convert religious kids. That is, right. attachment theory has shown, this is I think what we talked about in earlier episodes, that if you have an insecure attachment to your parent, there's more likelihood in, that the child will undergo a religious conversion to religion later on. Right. And that's been sort of longitudinally established as opposed to a stable uh, in, a secure attachment would lead to more or less a steady state. Hmm. So the other thing, though, it, like, so it doesn't apply this sort of poor relationship with parent to changes between parent and child's status of religion. It goes both ways. Right. It's not just um, religious parents create non-religious apostate kids. The other thing that you mentioned, though, is that there's a difference between being a convert or apostate mm-hmm. to atheism, if you want to think of a conversion that way, and being a, a steady state atheist, parents right. who aren't really religious and the kids aren't really religious. Mm-hmm. So this whole theory of saying, well, if people are atheists, it's because they have crappy parental relationships. That doesn't explain at all about people who never had religion to begin with. You right. know, let's say right. like uh, is the country of Denmark that has a lot of religious – are they all – just crappy fathers in Denmark, I mean, you know, or or people who have who were raised in not, and the examples that we just talked about that he gave of like Ayn Rand's father, or right. uh, that you have non-religious skeptical parents producing skeptical kids because they're good parents. They were good parents. So does that mean if my kids grow up to be religious, it's going to be a condemnation of my parenting yes, skills? Yes, it's only oh, when you screwed something up. <laughs> oh man, the fights are the same. They'll at sixteen, they'll come in and say, "Screw you, man! I'm going to church." You are not. Going 
going, sit down, come back here. Yeah. It's the same thing that happens. Yeah, actually, we have. I've also talked about the the on the show the um, the studies that that look at people who the, the amazing apostate, amazing believer series of studies where Altemeyer and Hunsberger looked at yeah. people who report that they either have high or low religiousness at college, but had the opposite as children that is grew up in a non-religious household and became religious. And actually, it turns out that the amazing apostates did report that they had family conflict. But here's the thing. They're unable to determine whether the conflict that they report with their parents was a cause or a result of the right. apostasy. That is, if this whole faith of the fatherless analytic theory is true, you have crappy parenting and then the kid does the opposite because of some sort of uh, I don't have a good parent figure right. and I need – or the other hypothesis is that as you would imagine with a strongly religious family with a teen who comes home and says, I have doubts. Here's a book by Richard Dawkins. You know, right. that, that would actually cause, no, you're not. Come back here, young man. And, and that sort of bad relationships would be a result of or some combination of those two uh, things. So that what uh, the uh, the amazing convert study, Altemeyer and Hunsberger study found was that many of the mo- – the majority of the apostates reported that their problems with their parents occurred after, after. Mm. they started the process uh, of, of apostasy. Yeah. Of course. makes sense. Yeah, and, and, and Luke, when you when you published that book about 2,000 years ago, that gospel that you wrote? <laughs> That's me. <clears throat> um, here, here's, a little, here's a little excerpt. Um, if any man come to me and hate, and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters – yeah, and his own life also. He cannot be my disciple. So Jesus was relying upon people having crappy relationships with their right, parents. Right, right. That's right. Well, when when your God or when when your when your dad sends you on a suicide mission, yeah. then you know, I mean, he's one of the, Jesus is one of the most devout believers of all. So I think something that, that's something there. Bart Ehrman has pointed out. If you actually read the Gospels without a lot of a priori knowledge, Jesus doesn't look like the most adoring ideal son in the <laughs> no. world, uh, saying things <laughs> like, like get God. thee away from me, woman, right. and uh, who am I to you when they come in, you know, the family's worried about Jesus being crazy, actually, and they right. send people in saying maybe we should take him away. And he... Even though they would have known about the miraculous birth. <laughs> yeah. And well, so that's always kind of confusing. That is confusing, yeah. So the, um, the I think it's the, the whole thing that's laughable i think about some of these theories are that they take the they sort of try to eliminate any debate about the reasons somebody might have for being non-religious or an apostate or an atheist there's let's say that there was an emotion i mean one of the sort of uh titles that he put this vitz guy puts on his work is that uh lack of belief has an emotional not a rational basis right now let's say that it were true that maybe on some level i disliked my father which i don't uh, but let's just say that i did and that's what caused me to apostatize Mm -hmm. okay but that you're still left with then if that's true and we can't at all trust why we believe what we believe because it's emotionally based. Let's say believers and atheists are emotionally based. Mm-hmm. We're still left with the factual arguments. Right. We're right. still with having to deal that the evidence. And so, so it, just leave and the and emotion and, stuff aside for both sides. So you know, like Charles Darwin, they make the argument. Let's say he was angry at his dad, and so he went off and ran off and became an atheist right. and amassed a mountain of evidence right. that evolution <laughs> was in fact occurring. Uh, you know, through doesn't natural selection. Matter. He was mad at his dad. It doesn't count. So are you going to tell me? Yeah, Throw out the finches. Right, for, it doesn't Forget count. the burden of proof. Yep. So I'm going to burst into a meeting of threatened <laughs> yeah. creationists saying, wait, we don't have to argue against evolutionists because he was mad at his father. So we can just, uh, you know, take the take the book away. And, it's a very convenient dismissal. Yeah, yeah. And just listening to that interview, and we will post the link, it's 
absurd the hoops he jumps through to make this make <laughs> sense. And and my question to you, Luke, and, and I think I may know the answer, is has there been a study on this? Do we have actual numbers of poor relationships with fathers in comparison with levels of atheism? Do we have that study? Well, the um, what, what, we, what we have are the studies that I mentioned on apostates. Right. Uh, and but but that's not the whole picture, right? But we don't really have that many studies, uh, and I know that they're under uh, in the works because I've gotten a lot of um, uh, emails from people who are actually amassing a greater and greater databases of atheist people, not just apostates, yeah. so, including apostates, but atheists asking more questions about their social family type relationships. Right. So that information is forthcoming. But I think that what we really lack is you know with especially with the increase in percentages of of non-religious people are more recent studies of people uh, who are non-religious. That back, some right. of these things were done back. They used to have, like in the '70s, these theories testing like adolescent rebellion hypotheses. Mm-hmm. Right, right. And, and these are people who became, you know, who came of age during the '60s and '70s. So I'm not exactly sure that we're like two percent of the population maybe right. labeled as atheists. I'm not exactly sure that's really relevant to people. The the percentage is now six, seven, eight, ten percent of people who are atheists mm. and agnostics now. But what I did do is actually I looked through my CFI data surveys, the ones yeah. that I had talked about earlier in the show in various parts. The of data it. that you got yourself. Yes, they whoa, published. Whoa, whoa, whoa! See now, now Vitz did this without doing any data. It sounds like his way is a lot easier. Yeah, you, you know, know he, I, I could speculate and just get some historical figures. Exactly. What I hey, he done. got a book. His book is that? already published, <laughs> my friend. His book is already published. Hey, I have a whole pitch line, lined up. So, <laughs> right. but, but what I did was actually the, the study that I talked about earlier in the show is I compared our three hundred and plus CFI local members with the three hundred plus church members as a comparison. And actually what I found is that those – when I looked at the childhood religious environment of people, it was true that the, the secular group members who had, a, a, who had a high childhood religions mm-hmm. but were now secular members had reported poor relationships with their families than people who, uh, who were raised in non-religious environments. But again, so did the church group members who grew up in non-religious households. Right. That it, is, it becomes post hoc. Well, yeah, know. yeah. So, it's, in other words, it's all the poor relationship thing, which this might, you know, it's very simplistic. Is of course you're going to have poor relationships if whatever your belief is now, religious, not religious, mm-hmm. is at odds with your family rearing environment. Right. And that goes for politics and and other issues as well. Absolutely. You know? I mean, if you're if you became a uh, if you were a young Republican as a high school student, then you became a, a hippie in college, and your family's still a Republican. Of course, you're going to have right. conflicts with them. That doesn't mean that it produced your values. Exactly. And uh, you know, so it, it's just relative of where you are now versus where you grew up in. And you read this quote earlier, Luke, but I wanted to turn back to uh, one statement in the Vitz interview about how. It's so much more convenient to be an atheist in our culture. There are no restraints on your sexual behavior telling that he picks sexual behavior out first yeah, of course, yeah. uh, or time to commit to others. You don't have to worry about other things. <laughs> but, but ultimately what this argument comes down to is it's so much easier to be an atheist because they can do whatever they want. They don't have to worry about – moral constraints or being responsible for their own behavior. Right. And so to address that point, I say it's time we do a little counter-apologetics. Hide your faith from the light of reason. It's now time for counter-apologetics. 
So this week's Counter Apologetics is, is on the topic of morality. I recently found a blog post on toughquestionsanswered.org entitled, Get This, uh, How Did Jeffrey Dahmer Define Morality? by Mr. Bill Pratt. Uh, this post had the same tripe that you hear from every Christian oh, apologist. Yeah. I mean, anybody who's been in these conversations, you know, this, this moral argument comes up. It starts off, quote, If morality is not grounded by a transcendent standard, a standard that is above all humanity, then it collapses into relativism. Boo. And so, so right off the bat, we're setting up a huge false dichotomy. Yeah. And, and by the way, can this guy be sued for calling his website tough ans- tough questions answered? Because uh, <laughs> a little bit of false advertising. Yeah, a little there. bit of false advertising. <laughs> so he sets up this false dichotomy of you know either you can base your morality on the transcendent standard like like a god, right? Or it's complete utter moral relativism. Yes. Um, Anything goes. Right, but but. But if he were to actually read up on on different ethical systems, he would realize that many of these systems seek to explain morality and ground it objectively rather than in the subjective preferences of the Christian God, Allah or my neighbor Ted. Uh, Ted Bundy? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, you just cued the, the whole serial killer. So in very, very different ways. So the question is, is there a way we can come to speak of objective moral values and actually be referring to things that actually exist? Well, I actually think the answer is yes here. Um, Desire utilitarianism, to me, is an extremely plausible theory of moral realism. I desire utilitarianism. (laughs) I believe that's an adult website, isn't it? Desire utilitarianism. (laughs) For very intellectual porn people. Much of what I... Uh, I'm about to say is going to be paraphrases and quotes of of the work of Alonzo Fife, the author of A Better Place, Selected Essays on Desire Utilitarianism. Um, And he also runs a blog at at atheistethicist.blogspot.com. So, desire utilitarianism holds that desires are the only reasons for intentional action that actually exist. It rejects concepts of intrinsic values or divine commands as unfounded. Hmm. So, um, I guess let's just define our terms. What is a desire? A desire is a propositional attitude, an attitude towards a proposition being true or staying true. Uh, it is also a brain state, and this is actually really important to remember as I, as I flesh out more of the theory here. An example would be, I am drinking water. That's a proposition. Uh, if my current attitude is towards that proposition being true, then I desire to be drinking water. Because of this, I will seek to realize the states of affairs in which the proposition is true. I will go to the faucet with a cup, fill it with water, place it in my mouth, so that the proposition, I am drinking water, is actually true about the world. And, you know, people will always seek to realize the states of affairs in which the propositions that are the objects of their desires are true. This is just this is just true by definition. That's what desires are. Uh, it's a simple fact behind every intentional action. There are no intentional actions that don't have a desire as their reason. Um, so this being a moral theory, uh, we should be able to account for value as well. A value, according to this theory, is a relationship between a desire and states of affairs. So uh, I actually went, I actually talked about this in, in the last episode right, regarding right. the perfect creator uh, dilemma. So value is a relational property, like distance to or distance from. And uh, 
so these are things that we can actually be right about and we can be wrong about. I can be wrong if I'm claiming that, you know, we're five feet from the sun. Right. It's an objective, true statement that I am wrong about that statement, right? Correct. Um, so an example would be if I go to the faucet expecting water and I get nothing, then this is bad. Okay. The word bad is the value term because it relates my desire to be drinking water to the fact that my current states of affairs thwarts that desire, i.e., the faucet is broken or right. it's not set up. You correctly. want to be drinking water. You're not drinking water. Therefore, right. and that, this is therefore bad. we insert that value term. Sure. Um, however, when I use bad here, it's important to realize that I'm not talking about a moral bad just yet. I'm just mm -hmm. using the word as a generic value term. You know, like good or bad. Like I could desire to murder someone, and if that person is running away, then that's bad, bad for me. Right. Generic. Your desire. Yeah. Right. How do we account for moral value? Well, moral value, according to this theory, is a subset of value terms. Morality is like a species of the genus value. Uh, it, it deals with a very specific type of value. Um, so how do we tell the difference between the two? Well, where generic value is concerned with the relationships between desires and states of affairs, moral values are concerned with the relationship between desires and a very specific kind of states of affairs, brain states. Uh, other desires. So moral value is concerned with the relationships between desires and other desires. Hmm. Uh, de so desire utilitarianism is a moral theory that holds that desires are the ultimate objects of evaluation and that desires are good or bad according to their utility, yeah. according to the degree in which they tend to fulfill or thwart other desires. Hmm. So here's the basics, just to outline it. Um, a morally good desire is one that tends to fulfill other desires, so it, it acts in a positive manner towards other desires. Um, a morally bad desire is one that tends to thwart. Uh, thus, a right act is that act that a person with good desires would intentionally perform, hmm. and a wrong act is one that a person with good desires would not intentionally perform. So essentially, I mean, moral... Morality is the practice of shaping malleable desires, promoting those desires that tend to fulfill, and discouraging and condemning those desires that tend to thwart. One could say that morality is about achieving a kind of harmony of these malleable desires. Um, so how can we tell whether a desire tends to fulfill or thwart? Mm -hmm. uh, example, uh, the desire to rape is a desire-thwarting desire. Uh, it is a desire that people generally have reason to get rid of. We can see the problem with the desire to rape by imagining that we have control over a knob that will generally increase or decrease the intensity and spread of a desire to rape throughout a community. To the degree that we increase this desire to rape, to that degree we increase the desires that will be thwarted. Either the desires of the rapist will have to be thwarted or the desires of the victims will have to be thwarted. The more and stronger the desire to rape, the more and stronger the, desire, the desires that will be thwarted. So, I mean, for all of us, the best place to turn this knob is down to zero so that there's no desire to rape. If this were the case, no victims would have their desires thwarted through rape, and there would be no rapists that would have to go through the frustration of having a desire to rape go unfulfilled. Right. So, so we really need to think of this as a, um, as a social event. It's not right. just if you're a sociopath and you don't care about the desires of anyone else or the community as a whole, then it's fine because you can rape because you have no moral, you have no moral idea of what 
what's good or bad for anyone else. It doesn't, doesn't matter to you. So in order to really define what's good, morally good, we have to think about what's best for the desires of the community as a whole, right. not just for ourselves personally. Because for me, it may be um, – it may fulfill a desire if I were to rob the bank. Right. That would work well for me. But it would thwart the desires of all the people who have their money in the bank, which, let's face it, at this point is no one because uh, the bank's collapsed. But uh, am, I, am I on the right track here? Well, I mean the desire to steal something, yes. right? That's essentially what we're talking about. Um, I mean I – because I like to um, have property, right. I don't want my community to have the desire to steal within it. Right. So when I observe someone stealing, I can infer that they had a desire to steal, mm-hmm. and I can condemn that. And it's it's true that we all have very strong reasons to condemn that. Right. Because we all value owning things, because if we didn't, we wouldn't intentionally We'd own things. We'd be communists. Right. So... <laughs> Um, Not that there's anything wrong with that. So th- these are the kinds of desires that people generally have reason to weaken or eliminate. Right. Uh, so we're going to condemn the the rapist, the the thief. We're going to use our social tools and we're going to bring them to bear on him. We have strong reasons to condemn these things and to not permit them. Um, and so generally, I mean, we have reasons to promote these things in the next generation. When when we raise our children, we yeah. have reasons to promote certain desires that will inform their actions, of course, and to condemn others. And that's exactly what we find parents doing. So how do we attempt to change these desires? Reason alone can't actually do it. You can't just discuss with someone. I mean, you have to appeal to their desires. If right. you say, hey, uh, you know, I mean, we've all gotten together because we have reasons to, to condemn theft. So we're gonna, we've created this institution called prison or, right. you know, and, and so we can use people's desires. Uh, we can appeal to them and say, hey, um, you obviously are because you have desires you want to fulfill them now if you steal we're going to put you in this place which will significantly reduce your ability to fulfill your other desires right so that's how we appeal to people mm. when they realize that then they'll be able to uh you know they they then they have reasons to try and reduce that desire within themselves as well mm-hmm. why should someone be a desire utilitarian i mean th- this is a valid question but i think the answer is that you know you should only be it be be one, you know, see morality in this way if you think that the propositions behind it are actually true, if the claims of desire utilitarianism are true. Um, if you can agree with them, then then you have a reason to uh, to subscribe to it. I mean, just like any kind of theory, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, if, if the claims are true, then you have good reason to uh, accept it. In, in closing here, uh, desire utilitarianism shows us that by changing bad desires into good desires in our community and within ourselves. We can foster states of affairs where there is the highest probability that our ratio uh, and the ratio of those that we love of desires fulfilled to desires thwarted will be as high as possible now and in, now and in the future. This article that was bringing up the whole Jeffrey Dahmer thing, you know, that, mm-hmm. you know, if you don't have a transcendent standard, you're not accountable to anybody. Right. Um, I mean, we, we know that that's just not correct. Clearly not the case. Yes. Um, we live in social groups. Right. So everything that we do that affects other people, they have reasons to condemn us for it. So we have good reasons to try and align our desires with those things that tend to fulfill. Well, and also the golden rule type of thing covers a lot of things, even logically, not just 
through a motion of empathy, but through the principle of non-contradiction. I shouldn't recommend a moral principle for you to abide by that I can't that abide I can't. by myself. Yeah, right. exactly. So right. why, you know, why do I not drive like a maniac because I just want to get home quicker? Because my life suffers if I would, uh, if other people drive like a maniac. Yeah. So I recommend that you drive sensibly. That means that I have to drive sensibly. Can't I can't privilege my needs above yours? And that covers like I don't know ninety some percent of moral situations right, just right. by logical non-contradiction that I can't recommend a rule if I'm Jeffrey. I might want to eat somebody's liver, you know, uh, with fava beans and a canty, but I wouldn't want to if somebody ate my liver with fava beans and a canty, so I, yeah, I shouldn't do it, you know. And that's so I, and, I'm just and that not certainly governs. Principle. It's not it it won't cover all right. situations. It's not, it's not completely but, adequate, but it is a yeah. great ground rule to to start at. But right? the, the thing that I always found that that was the most sort of prop. Problematic for utilitarian though is that those people that make the argument that okay, if society benefits from whatever benefits the most people, what do you do in a situation where, let's say you have the, the situation where you have a rare blood type and there's five other people that need organs donated. Would I be justified in killing you and distributing your organs to save five people? Mm. Now, uh, from a, util, a pure utilitarian would say that five people benefit and t- too bad for you. It's one like pushing the uh, fat guy on the train tracks. To, yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, well, the, well, what this would say is that we shouldn't actually assess the action Right. We, what we should be doing is assessing the desire behind it. So the desire to um, end someone's life prematurely, right, mm-hmm. uh, is a desire that tends to thwart other desires. Right. So, so yeah, I mean, I guess you could make a case for the greater good. You know, if if a whole lot of people are going to be saved for the death of one person, mm-hmm. but according to this theory, it it seems to suggest that. Uh, you know, the desire to kill is a desire that, that tends to thwart other desires, and so we have good reasons to condemn it across the board. Now, of course, there are going to be exceptions with uh, different specifics of situations, and those those can be assessed through um, through other criteria. And th- these are the kind of questions that, that Alonzo actually addresses on his blog that are really... Um, he, he actually takes this and, and brings it to, you know, applied ethics and shows you... You know, according to this theory, here is how you would handle particular situation A, situation B. So these are really good questions, and uh, they're worth discussing. And and that's the thing about about these moral theories is that you know if if they're if we can reason through things, mm-hmm. that's what's actually important. If, if we're going to blindly look at a situation and look at it in a very black and white situation, like. Uh, you know, divine command theorists would have us believe that we should be doing. Um, if that's the case, then then there's no room for improvement. But what this theory allows is that when we can better understand the tendency of desires, that's uh, that's what we call moral improvement. Uh, so if if we already have all the answers, then 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 we can throw out any kind of reasoning or which is what what biblical literalists literalists and so forth would say. Exactly. We do have all the answers. We don't need to reason well, this. It's the, all spelled out. The thing right. that always that doesn't work on an empirical, not a philosophical, logical level, but an empirical level. The, my response to that whole relative argument is that is is clearly that what we see is that religion is you know divine commandment obedience is relativistic. Yeah, and most oh, of them, are, you know, the whole biblical slaughtering and things like that that becomes relative. Uh, that's relativistic. Morality becomes whatever God says it is. Right. So why is it right for you it, know? It's for covenantal to... relativism, really. Yeah. What? Depending depending on the time you're living and, and the covenant you're under, there are different things. You know, under one covenant, you're commanded to kill a witch when you come by her. Right. 
and another you are told not that's, to murder. That's, you're told not to. Right. Do that. Right. Yeah. So you know the, the way that I always respond to the the relative, you know, atheists is just morally relativistic is that you know. Um, is that at least we attempt to hash things out logically through things like arguing about philosophy and utilitarianism, right. whereas saying God wants me to do it is clearly a road to right. the ultimate form of relativism. I'm doing this, yes. and with a 4,000-page text that's contradictory in many places, you can make a case for basically anything right. in a relativistic way. Uh, right. you know? when, you, when you have the lawgiver giving, uh, giving laws – uh, but not actually following those laws, right. then you realize that that, that lawgiver isn't actually the moral being because he's not subject to his own laws. Right. So it's a completely incoherent. I mean, there, there's nothing to be to be grabbed from from the. You'd the almost be better theories. off with Jeffrey Dahmer giving you your moral code right. than the Christian God. Yeah, there's no there's no particular reason. Jeffrey why Dahmer was at least consistent. <laughs> was he uh, in prison? Wasn't he a converted Christian before? Oh yes, then? yeah, and that's actually. Um, this article goes over that, and and it quotes Jeffrey Dahmer saying something to the effect of, you know, if we came from the slime, yes, uh, and, and and we're not really accountable to anybody, right? Um, first of all, just strawmanning, right. <laughs> but I mean, and, and completely misunderstanding. The, you we know, came from slime, therefore we are just slime, right? Well, that's the whole Dostoevsky, you know, without God, anything is possible <laughs> exactly. thing. But, uh, I, again, being the empiricist I am, I would say let's look at the evidence and see how, you know, see how atheists believe. Which one to... works. Yeah. 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 Right. Definitely. Definitely. All right. Uh, we're going to move on now and take another journey into the world of polyatheism. <laughs> By the way, before I start, I wanted to throw out a thank you to John, one of our listeners, who created a logo for polyatheism. Ooh. He sent he sent us a, a picture of a polyatheism logo, and it's awesome. Um, that'll end up. Where's my God? Thinks like somewhere. you logo. How can hey, he get well, a logo? You know, what? I've been looking for a new tattoo. What can I tell you? <laughs> um, anyway. Uh, this visit to the world of polyatheism takes us to the only place with more people with pasty complexions than the San Diego Comic-Con, Ireland. <laughs> Which is a joke I can make because I'm both a pasty comic book geek and <laughs> Irish. Okay, I'm not Irish, but I did play an Irish. What's that bright object once. in the sky? <laughs> Back to the dungeon. Um, and with Valentine's Day, not yet a distant memory, I thought this week we could talk about the Celtic love god, Angus. Or as it's pronounced originally... Angus. Uh, that's more Scottish. What's the distinction? I don't see. No two Scotsmen. None. Yeah. Uh, in many ways, Angus is a god of forbidden love. Even his own birth is the result of a tryst between the water goddess Bowen and Dagda, the good father, god of the Celts. In order to hide her pregnancy from her husband, Necton, Bowen asks the son to stand still for nine months. In effect giving her the opportunity to get pregnant, gestate, and give birth all in one day. Wow. Worked out nicely for the Irish people, too, of course, because they were able to knock an unprecedented amount of things off their to-do lists that day. Eventually, Bone gets her comeuppance when, despite being told not to, she approached her husband's well of all knowledge and walked around it counterclockwise. This upset the well so much that it boiled over in a rage and spilled out and became Ireland's Boyne River, named after the goddess whose ill-advised counterclockwise walking led to its creation and her own drowning. We have a Boyne Mountain here. Is that where that's from? 
Probably. I have no idea. I have no idea. (laughs) Interesting sidebar about the well of knowledge. The well gained its knowledge because it was surrounded by trees of knowledge that dropped hazelnuts of knowledge into the well. After the water spilled out and became the Boyne River, a salmon swam into it and became the salmon of knowledge, which the great hero Finn McCool eventually ate and gained great knowledge from. So Finn McCool ate the salmon of knowledge that swam in the river of knowledge that spilled out from the well of knowledge that was fed by the hazelnuts of knowledge. Ignored by his father, Angus was raised by his half-brother, Mydir, who was in turn killed by Angus's stepfather, Elkmar. According to scholar Paul Witz, this all contributed to the love God's atheism in his adulthood. Uh, I was waiting for that connection. When Angus came to claim his share of inheritance from Dagda, he found that his good daddy had already divvied up all of his land amongst his other children. Disappointed, but still rather clever, Angus asked his deadbeat dad if he could stay in an area near his mother's river for, quote, a day and a night. Dagda agreed, forgetting that there are no indefinite articles in their language, and thus a day and a night is indecipherable from day and night. And thus Angus had claim to the land forever and ever. It's kind of like the garage behind your parents' house. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> Cozy. Yeah. It's the best you can do. Oh, we run electric out there for you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, other stories involving Angus include him killing a poet for writing nasty things about one of Angus's brothers, uh, Angus killing his own foster mother, and Angus losing his foster daughter to the seductive Christianity of St. Patrick. Ooh. Uh, yeah. The Celts meet Patrick. Saint this Patrick's time it's personal. That's right. Swaying his hips back and forth. And, and of course, it's important <laughs> that, that we note that all of the Celtic mythology we have was written after the Christians showed up. So everything we have. Really? It, yeah. It's all tainted by a Christian worldview. So St. Patrick showing up here to steal the um, foster daughter of one of the Celtic gods is about a lot more than just uh, a god losing it's his a metaphor. Yes, yes. Uh, Angus had some good fortune in his own love life, including finding the woman of his dreams. Literally, he dreamt of a woman, and after three years, he, along with the help from some of his family and friends, was able to find her. Unfortunately, when they did find her, she was part of a 150-woman chain gang. <laughs> Which, this uh, is like a Grindhouse movie, right? <laughs> this is awesome. This is a Grindhouse uh, Keep going. It certainly flick. should be. Um, and these women were all due to turn into swans on November 1st. Sweet. Yeah, kind of like the black swan, only with less masturbation. Ah, uh, yeah. <laughs> or more, I guess, depending on... Uh, anyway. Um, <laughs> Angus was told that if he could identify her after she turned into a swan, then he could have her. As luck would have it, he could... And then he himself turned into a swan, and the two made beautiful music I wonder together. what the distinguishing features were that he was able to point out. A birthmark or something? Yeah, I go. don't know. There's something. Maybe her smell. She smelled like a swan in life, too, so that was kind of the <laughs> confusing part. Uh, the most of the love god Angus's story has been forgotten in popular culture. There are still... There is still one sign of him that persists. You see, Angus had four little birds flying around him, sending out love into the world, giving kisses. And those little birds were depicted by four X's. Oh. X, X, Love and kisses. X. So when you sign your Valentine's Day cards with it, XO, 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 remember that the X's are a tribute to Angus, who happens to be 
one more God worth not believing in. And let's move on to some props. These are both listener-supported props mentions. Uh, one of them comes from Australia, from Phil in Australia, who says that um, this Tuesday, which is now a week or two ago, his 11-year-old will be taking part in an ethics class at his public school. For the past six hmm. years, he has had to sit and do nothing while other students participated in special religious education, a program run by volunteers and the local churches. Any child opting out of the SRE was not allowed to do anything that would give them an academic advantage over the SRE kids, and wow. they couldn't do anything interesting for fear of the SRE kids wanting to do it instead of going to scripture <laughs> So the school right. bought a sensory deprivation tank. Yeah. <laughs> Laser tag. I, I, I imagine it was basically, you know, study hall. You just sit there right. with a book. I tell you, I don't know if any of our, our friends down under can do this or know if anybody – I would just love to see a study where they follow people – Kids who take uh, secular ethics courses versus the standard religious courses over the course of a year, and then give them some sort of measure of ethical reasoning. Who's pregnant? Please. Yeah. Well, <laughs> no. you can do a behavioral measure right. too, but I would love to see a study that actually compares the instructional whether there's any right. difference or whether mm. one is superior. L- or looking not. at the great philosophers versus looking at the scripture. Uh, I think it's great. This is um, huge props to Australia for, I guess, after six years, finally figuring out something they could do with the kids who didn't uh, opt into the – or the kids who did opt out of the special religious education. So um, it's a big step in the right direction. And ethics classes, I wish we had – we offered that here in in, uh, elementary and high school. Because Could you imagine the the, the the transition from, well, why shouldn't I hit my friend there? Well, let's turn to page 50 and see what God says about the two <laughs> because you wouldn't like to be hit. Any questions? Yeah. <laughs> it's a much better way to approach it. Yeah. Um, and uh, another props comes from another um, dazzling exotic land, Hawaii, which, by the way, is not a state – and Obama is not really the president. Um, that's that's just to balance out all of the pay, Palin bashing we've been doing in the last few episodes. Right. In in the state of Hawaii, the state Senate banned all opening prayers for the Senate as of this January 20th. And this comes to us from Charles. This is the first state to do this that said you we may not have prayers before – State Senate well, meeting. Well, have you seen those videos with yeah. the guys getting tackled? In, uh, yeah, it was in Hawaii. Was yeah, that's what a happens. guy um, stood up and uh, voiced his objections and was arrested for it. Um, and thrown to the ground. And thrown to, yeah. yeah. Was he tased? He the might have the been camera tased. was smashed. Oh, really? Yeah. So now they have, they've uh, changed their law and it's great because you know what? There is no place in government for prayers before meetings. And these are totally... Uh, one of the reasons the the gentleman who was arrested was objecting is because it was a Christian prayer. This was not a non-denominational. It wasn't a um, broad prayer. It was an appeal to Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, et cetera, et cetera. Again, I say that they should show up. If they wouldn't have passed this, they should show up in authentic Hawaiian native garb and do some of their uh, rituals to their gods because there's no reason why the state could pick and choose and say, oh, we're not going to – we'll have none of that. 
<laughs> sacrifice some virgins, you know, right before this you is, get to, to a work. Volcano, this just is a stereotype. <laughs> and in uh, the next order of business, pothole filling. Uh, yeah, right. Following the virgin sacrifice. Um, we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll post this link online too, but there is a uh, local pastor, local to Hawaii, not to us, who did a blog post about this, and the title is A Sad, Tragic, Dumb Day in the Hawaii Senate. Um, and it's all about him bemoaning the fact that they've uh, gotten rid of God and, of course, to their runs, anarchy and... Uh, and getting to the city business. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, at least they're isolated. We're isolated from them by all that ocean. So. That's right. We don't have to worry too much. The miserable folk in Hawaii. Yeah, yeah. Luckily, their cultural movements don't affect us on the mainland. <laughs> Oy. Then let's end here with A Stranger Than Fiction. Grammar Nazi? Then you're probably an atheist. This comes from a blog post. The blog is Epithenom. Good title. Epithenom. That's Tom Reese. We've had him on our show before. Yep, yep. Um, And there's a, a study out that suggests that those of us who are uh, I don't like the term grammar Nazi because I don't like the word grammar. We're grammar socialists, um, I thought. <laughs> yeah, we have, we already get associated too much with Nazis anyway. That's, that's right. This is from the database from, what is it, OkCupid? Yes, OkCupid. Yeah. Which is a dating site, and so they can compile various measures of predictors of who's attracted to who and what things you post on yes. your, your page. And, and they've been releasing these different questions that you can ask uh, someone on a first date Fairly innocuous questions that will tell you a lot more about them. Which is a pure, like an empirical predictor. It doesn't even necessarily right. theoretically ask to mean anything. It's just the presence of this is correlated with the yes. presence right. of that. There's a high level of correlation, good chance, not but... necessarily causation. Um, for example, if you said to someone on a first date, do you have a bad relationship with your father? <laughs> That's what to Come ask on. for the code for the <laughs> atheists. But if you do ask them if... If poor grammar and punctuation bothers them, they are more likely to be an atheist, probably because we're such finicky, detail-oriented With our people. education and our yeah, well, and that's a big part intellectualism. Of it too, of what, we lack, what we lack in our relationship with our father, we make up with great punctuation. That's right. We may not – yes, we may not be, have a whole picture of the universe <laughs> and, and where we're going in it, but we'll – We'll get picky we'll about commas. We'll our, our eyes and we'll cross our Wasn't teeth. there a Facebook group too said that I judge you when you use bad grammar? It's like you can yeah. judge me. Oh, totally. It, I know one one other part of this study, and I can't remember most of the others, but one was um, if you ask someone if they drink beer, they're more likely to be someone who will sleep with you. Well, not you, but who will have sex on their first date. As if this was anything new. <laughs> Guys have been using these indicators since time immemorial. <laughs> Of well, yeah. So if the girl has tattoos and piercings, she does certain watch attacks. it. Watch it. Oh, you're. <laughs> yeah, my my wife has a few tattoos. Um, but uh, they're yeah. subtle. Yeah, <laughs> that's funny. Um, so yeah, so um, I guess this is good for both uh, people who appreciate grammar and people who appreciate reason because uh, we're both in the in the winning categories. And there. who appreciate beer? And who appreciate beer? <laughs> and who like women who like beer? That's I guess why so many men drink beer. 
because they're willing to have sex on the first date. I think that's the, <laughs> the correlation we can draw there. Well, again, the the causal direction probably is that you, you know you more, the more you knock out those pesky inhibitory centers of the brain, the more likely you'll <laughs> right. do a lot of things, including sex on the date. Right, 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 right. <laughs> well, that's gonna do it for us this week. Now, I do have one very important announcement to make. We are up for an award. Did you guys know this, or do you not pay any attention to Facebook? Uh, I pay too book? much attention what to Facebook. We're, we're, up to, we're up for an award um, through About.com in their atheist and agnostic category, and there are a bunch of subcategories, including <laughs> um, best blog, best um, best website, website right. forum, etc., and we are up for the best podcast. And currently, we at least last time I checked, we were dead center. We had two above us and two below us. But the top one, which is a very good show, Atheist Experience, currently when we record this is the top top vote getter, mm-hmm. is slaughtering everyone. Right, right. No offense to them, but if you like this show and you want to show your support, if every one of our listeners votes once – for Reasonable Doubts as the best atheist slash agnostic podcast on about.com. And we'll post the link and we'll post it on Facebook every day and be on the link um, on our website. If everyone votes once, we should be able to win as long as the other podcasts don't come up with the idea of telling their listeners the same thing. We're shameless. Right. And then this isn't a guilt trip. It's no, just, no, you know, no. It's like those I Oscar mean, campaigns where we put out a, a spread and variety magazine yeah. of voting. I mean, for... sure, it's, it's a free service, but, you know, you're not obligated. No, 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 no. You're no, not obligated. Of course not. But if we don't win and they have the award go to Atheist Experience, I'm going to knock quitting. back a few and go up and grab the mic and say, yo, I'm going to give – just give me the mic for a minute. Yo. Say, I'm going to pull a Kanye. I'm going to let you finish. Uh, yeah. So um, we would we would certainly appreciate all the votes we get there. But if you have anything else to say to us other than um, clicking yes to say you like us on about.com, um, you can send us emails at doubtcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Facebook or Twitter slash doubtcast. We'll be back next time with another Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. To catch up on past Reasonable Doubts episodes or to email your questions or comments, check out www.doubtcast.org. Reasonable Doubts is a production of WPRR Reality Radio. You can find out more about Reality Radio at publicrealityradio.org. Reasonable Doubts theme music is performed by Love Fossil and used with permission. General question is when you t- when you have your kids bedtime reading story do you ever like read a mythology as part of like fairy tale stories yeah because none of that is like even R rated it's, it's no. all NC seventeen well I, I I read I read the baby the epic of Gilgamesh <laughs> and she was all about that but. Uh, <laughs> Um, like I yeah. just picture the I, in my mind's eye, I can see the Fletch family. Everyone's lined up by size in their little beds, <laughs> and he cracks open a musty volume and starts to narrate the story <laughs> of a lusty princess. And it, it raise a lot of. But what is? Why would he the, masturbate? The fun him? part is there's a lot of kids' versions of of classic myths. Which are so watered down. Well, and, look at the Grimm's fairy tale. Yeah, exactly. In the Grimm's fairy tale. 
no no Zeus impregnating a woman as a golden shower. Um, no, that all gets yeah, that's that's in there. Anyway, I'd tell Christians, you know what? Harry Potter's about as good as you're going to get for, <laughs> for safe fantasy. If, if you want to go back yeah. to the classics, you know, knock yourself up because Just they'll be like even more children. damaged. 